We're in Acts chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles with me. We're glad again you're here with us today, and we're going to talk about a subject that is really uh, close to my personal heart, and that is engaging our culture. Uh, Last week we started a series to kick off this new year in celebration of our 20th year anniversary as a church this year called The Spirit of the Church. And uh, what we're doing is we're looking at Acts chapter 2 together, which was the very first chapter that we looked at together as a church 20 years ago to lay out some fundamental principles that this church was going to uh, be founded upon based upon this chapter to allow us to fulfill the mission in which we believe Jesus called us to fulfill as a church. Now this is by no means an comprehensive study of ecclesiology that is a study of the church. These were some simple principles that I believe have truly um, given us the longevity that we have uh, enjoyed uh, to this day. Now that we discover that uh, only 23% of church plants are surviving today, uh, that's a very low number, the lowest number it's ever been. Um, I believe that the reason that we are here celebrating this is because uh, of some of the principles that the Lord has lead, led us to follow as a church. And it begins in chapter 2, verse 1. And we looked at this last week, but we desired to be a spirit-led church. Let's read together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Why? We talked about this. Because Jesus told them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit before proceeding into uh, the the different regions of the world to take the gospel to each and every place that he would lead them to take it. But they couldn't do it in and of themselves, so he made it clear that they needed to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit to come upon them, to allow them to be the witnesses that they needed to be. And we looked at this more comprehensively last week together. So I would encourage you to listen to that. So they're gathered now on, at Pentecost, this feast in Israel's uh, yearly uh, celebration. And they're all in one place. And suddenly came upon from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, indicating the power. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared on them. That's presence. The God was with them. Uh, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. The arrival of the Holy Spirit is the uh, initiation, the, uh, the uh, uh, inauguration, I should say, of the church being born and being uh, released and uh, being moved and being brought together God is now getting to re- ready to work through this institution in which he is going to create the church to fulfill and to continue the ministry of Jesus uh, that Jesus began in those three years of ministry. The church was now going to continue and take into the whole world through the power of the Holy Spirit. We looked at all of that last week. We looked at the practical repercussions of what it means to be a spirit-led church. I don't think there's any other way to do church than to be a spirit-led church. But by verse 5, now notice with me, there's very little white space in your Bibles between verses 4 and 5, is there? The very first thing 
that the church has to do is engage the current culture in which it finds itself. Uh, there, there's no boot camp that they that the Spirit came upon them and then they all ran down into their little caves and they all hid there and, and then they just, just kind of stood there and did their little church thing, all 120 of them, and, and that's what happened after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Is that what happened? No. They didn't withdraw. They didn't retreat. They engaged immediately. God didn't give them the option to do anything but immediately they were thrust into an engagement with the culture. Immediately. As they appear to be in this upper room, and that is debated, the logistics of this uh, scene is debated. Was it a uh, temple court? Was it an upper room? Uh, There's some debate about what that actually means. But after the Spirit came upon them, they began praising God in other languages, languages that were unknown to them. An aspect of the gift of tongues where languages are being spoken. And they're talking and they're praising God as we will find in a minute as they're talking about the wonderful works of God. And immediately they're thrust into this position where they have to engage the current culture. There's no layover. There's no lapse of time. It's immediate. They've got the Spirit. They're out there praising God as I envision it. They're in the upper room. They come out onto the patio, which was probably the rooftop of the house. They're praising God in these other languages, and immediately they're confronted with the culture of that time. Because Jerusalem was swollen at this time. At the Feast of Pentecost, it was one of the largest feasts gathering there in Jerusalem, and it was not uncommon for the population to double, if not triple, by this time. So the streets were filled. Everywhere you go, there is people. And all of a sudden, as they are uh, moving through the streets, making their way possibly to the temple, they hear this incredible sound, and then they see these uneducated Galileans speaking in languages that they know that those Galileans do not know. The Galileans who spoke Greek had very difficult times with the gutters and the utterances of other languages, and they were very very well known throughout the region of being uh, uneducated people, unable to really learn foreign languages, and all of a sudden these Galileans are speaking languages that everybody can understand. And immediately, the new church is in contact with the current culture. Immediately. And I found that to be fascinating, especially because of what's happening in our culture today, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment. But let's keep reading in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, now the scholars debate, is it the sound of the Spirit rushing in or is it the sound of the new tongues being spoken? They debate that. The multitude came together. They were bewildered by what they were hearing because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. This is what makes me believe that it was the tongues that they heard that drew their attention. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenian, Medes, Imelites, 
the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, uh, Cappadonia, uh, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrenes and visitors from Rome, both Jews and Prosthetites, Cretans and Arabs, or Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mock, saying, and They were just filled with new wine. It is so fascinating to me that God immediately initiates his new founded infant church to engage the current culture immediately after being given the Holy Spirit, the power to become the witnesses that he has called them to be. Today in seminaries across America, there are two questions that are being considered by most seminaries. Um, One of them uh, that I've been taking some classes through Dallas Theological Seminary, one of them is how to currently engage our culture. Christians today find themselves on the outside looking upon or in to the culture And we feel or have appeared to have lost our footing within the culture to be in effect upon the culture. So seminaries are wrestling with this question. How do we once again re-engage the culture in which we find ourselves? The second question I find is very interesting. Today the great debate is, what is an evangelical Christian? And books are being written to try to define what an evangelical Christian is. When we started the church 20 years ago, there was no doubt what an evangelical Christian was. One who was passionate about sharing their faith in Jesus Christ, who held to fundamental orthodox view of scripture and doctrines therefore contained and lived their life uh, with the passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today that's being rearranged. That's being redefined. And as a result, we find ourselves as a subculture looking into our culture that's passing us by like we were standing on a highway and we're like, we need to affect it. And we're like, remember that game Frogger? You know, it's like, all right, where do we jump in at without getting splat? That's the way I feel the church is today in America, that we're on the outside. We're looking into our culture. We're waiting for an opportunity to jump in, but we're more afraid of getting hurt and persecuted than penetrating our culture. So we're like the frogger. Where do we jump in? Where do we jump into our culture? But yet from the very beginning, God said the church was meant to interact with the culture. From the very beginning. Okay, you're not going to just sit comfortable, get lazy, complacent, and apathetic. Right away, you're going to be thrust into the center, and you're going to have to give an explanation of what is happening amongst you to begin this new thing called the church. If you noticed with me, in verse 5, the Spirit organized this so brilliantly that at the moment the Spirit came upon them, 
And they began speaking in other tongues, other languages, that were heard by all these people passing by. A list of 15 different places is given to us there in the Scripture. Now, I know that all of you are perfectly familiar where all those places are on a map, and you could point to them immediately, couldn't you? But I wanted to show you a picture of what this actually meant to help illustrate the brilliance of the Holy Spirit and the brilliance of His timing and how He penetrated and moved the church from Jerusalem already to permeate every aspect of the known world. Let's take a look at this next slide. All right, I'm sure you can read all those names up there. But this picture shows you the Roman Empire. And one of the names mentioned is on the very far right. The other name mentioned is on the very far left. Another name mentioned is in the very far south. And another name mentioned is in the very far north. The Holy Spirit just perfectly timed this so that those who were listening would hear and experience and be given an explanation of what is going on and then be able to take it back to the regions in which they occupied and lived. In one event, the Holy Spirit was setting up the gospel, the good news, the arrival of Jesus Christ, the extension of Jesus Christ to go throughout the whole world in one step. Isn't that beautiful? So the very first thing I understand about the Holy Spirit's role in engaging us in the culture is that he knows perfectly how to do it and when to do it. And that we need to get on board what he's doing if we're going to be effective in permeating and to entering into our culture and affecting our culture for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Almost the whole known world at this time is represented by those different individuals that are gathered there, who God grabs their attention, who stop and ask the question, what does this mean? Preparing full well for them to return to their areas of residence and begin to discuss and to talk about and begin to lay the groundwork for the reception of the gospel in those areas in one stroke, in one attempt. This is what the Spirit of God has been able to do. But notice as these passerbys from all these different places, they're already devout Jews. They are familiar with Judaism. They have subjected themselves to the Mosaic law. They have all the history They understand the Old Testament undoubtedly and they are now ready to hear and to see and the sound stops them. Verse 6. And at this sound the multitudes came together and they were bewildered. It uh, blew them back. It it caught them off guard. It, it, It stopped them in their tracks. This was significant. It's like you walking outside and maybe you're running or maybe you're uh, just walking for exercise or taking your dog for a walk and then all of a sudden you hear this sonic boom. Not being able to see the plane that just created it, but hearing the boom, you're just bewildered for that moment. What has just happened? And God stops them in their tracks. And he proceeds then. It says here that they were hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. Let me tell you why. 
Each of these regions that we showed you on the map, though Greek was the prominent language, there were sub-dialects that were um, regional to each one of those locations. English is the prominent language here in the United States of America, but all of us know all too well that depending on where you grow up, your English is going to sound a little bit different, right? If you go to Boston... If you go to New York, okay, it's going to sound a little different. If you go down south, they speak something. I'm not sure what it is. If you're here in Chicago, okay, the right way to speak English. Even if you go to L.A., we have accents. We pronounce words in um, a little different manner in each area and region of our nation, and that accent gives us the identity of where we have come from. You know, I, uh, you know, if someone says "y'all" you know, to Texas, okay, you know, if there's a, a twang, then you know maybe Colorado, uh, the Carolinas or something. And uh, but that being said, each one of these regions had a subdialects and then they learned Greek. But the subdialects were so unique that the really the only way you could know how to speak them properly is by growing up in that area, correct? You know, they say in England that they speak English, but I'm not sure that's English, are you? Okay, the the back end of a car is not a boot. Okay? And therefore, you have to learn the dialogue, you have to learn the dialect, you have to learn the definitions of the words. And apparently what the disciples were doing were speaking in the language of those sub-dialects and people were so astonished by that, they were so perplexed by that. How is it possible? You're Galileans. Uh, You would have never traveled that far And therefore stayed there that long to be able to accurately articulate these languages. And yet through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what they were able to do. And as a result, they were amazed. They were perplexed. They took a step back. They looked at it. They were confused by what was happening. This was super natural, to say the least. And this was coming from Galileans who had fundamentally a speaking problem because their gutterances couldn't pronounce uh, the words properly. If you try to speak French for the very first time, it's like the first time you ever get on a violin and start playing. It's, it's really tough. Or if you've adventured into any of the Oriental languages, you know that Korean and Japan and and China, they sound similar to us, but there are grave differences between all of them. Let alone going to a country like India and trying to move from one village to another where each village has its own dialect and therefore have also modified that dialect uh, somewhat themselves regionally uh, to express and to say things in a certain manner that is common to that specific location. So they were absolutely perplexed by what has just taken place. This supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit that led 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances, took the individuals, the passers-by, by surprise, and they were now fully in tune to ask the following question that is found in verse 12. What does this mean? The Greek implications of this verse is this. Not only what is happening right here and now, the implication of this verse in Greek is what, are, what is the full scope of the implications of what is happening right now? Wait a minute, there's something much more happening before us. I don't fully understand the whole context of it, but I understand that there's something miraculously taking place and there's a story to be told about it. There's something happening here that I need to be aware of and they want to know what the true fulfillment, the true meaning of all of this is. As one wrote, he says, the question in Acts 2.12 does not refer immediate to the immediate meaning of the particular expression, but rather to its broadest implication, so that the question may very well be rendered as, why does this say, or why does this, or what does this imply? And so now the stage is set. The culture has been engaged in this supernatural way. And immediately, the disciples are now faced with the reality of having to contend with the current culture, telling us from verse 5 that these are Jewish individuals steeped in the tradition of Judaism and now are waiting for a biblical explanation of what is about to take place, and that is, or what has just taken place, and that's exactly what Peter gives them that we will look at next time together. But some resisted, as the culture will always do, and began to mock, scoff at what is taking place. Uh, They're just filled with new wine, basically saying that they are intoxicated and drunk. There are two implications. It could simply mean that they are referring to the new wine, the sweet wine that had the most or the largest alcohol content of all wine at that time, and that they hit this stuff so early in the morning that they are already fully intoxicated and so forth. I don't know about you, but I have never, ever heard someone intoxicated speak fluently in a second language all of a sudden, have you? Oh, I've heard them try to say something, (laughs) but have absolutely no clue what it is. But I've never seen anyone completely intoxicated all of a a sudden begin to speak uh, in a, a dialect of something that they have never experienced or heard in their life. Mandarin. It's never happened. This was just a passing glance. This was a way to resist or to um, look into this no further. They were just simply dismissing what is going on here. Now, other scholars bring up this point, and I think this is interesting. In the Greek concepts, in the manner in which individuals in the pagan society of Greece interacted with their gods, at often times when gods were inspiring their followers to do something, the outward appearance of that individual inspired by their pagan god would be that of intoxicity. So they were just completely blasted, and oftentimes the Greeks would say, oh, he's under the inspiration of his god. That's true, it was alcohol. But through intoxication, they also believed inspiration could be rendered by the pagan gods. I don't believe that's in play here. 
These are Jewish people. I believe that they are egregiously saying that, no, they are just drunk, they don't know what they're talking about, and yet, therefore, I can just simply dismiss what is happening before me. When I read this initially, 20 years ago, I realized that if we were going to be an effective church, we had to make sure that we were constantly um, encouraging the members of our church to engage their culture. At whatever phase or place they are in their Christian life, they are ready to engage their culture in some way or another. Engaging it for the purpose of the evangelism of the world. When I got saved in the 1980s, evangelism was a uh, primary cornerstone topic of the Christian faith. It was a cornerstone identity of what a Christian is. I got saved, and even before I knew anything about biblical theology, I just ran and told everybody about what had happened. I came to Christ. Uh, Jesus has freed me from my sins. I'm a new person in Jesus Christ. This is what God can do for you. How many of you remember those zealous days as a new believer where you just shared with anybody and everybody that would listen to you? And then they would ask you this really hard question about evolution or about some other practice, and you would just say, I don't know about that, but Jesus is so cool. You know, Evangelism was such a large aspect. We just wanted to tell everybody and anybody about Jesus. That has completely changed today. Barna Research Group tells us that more Christians today than ever before are hesitant and reluctant to share anything about their faith in Jesus Christ. For reasons such as this, I don't want them to hate me I want them to continue to be my friend. I don't want to get into an argument. I don't know enough about my faith. For reasons like this, the body of Christ has become hesitant in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result of our apprehension, you know what we have done? We have withdrawn from our culture. We are now sitting on the sidelines as culture is going by us. And what are we doing? We're complaining about the culture. The culture stinks. Everything in the world is bad, but we're not doing a darn thing to to infiltrate and to make the gospel known in those circles. When I got saved, people who were architects saw their place of business as mission fields. People who were reporters saw their place of of, uh, occupation as a mission field. And they went to work each and every day to glorify God and to impact the culture there at their company. And do you know what happened when they did that? Do you know what happened when individuals of our church went back to their friends, back to their family members, uh, into their workplaces, and started talking about Jesus, talking about the gospel, talking about what he has done in their personal lives? Do you know what happened? People got saved. Because God was working through the simplicity of just desiring to get the message out. But today we are so apprehensive. Has the world pushed us back? Absolutely. But does that mean that we retreat into obscurity? Does that mean that we now 
rest apathetically in the subculture in which we created, or does it mean that we just have to be a little bit more persistent in our endeavors? Those are the questions that I raised to you this morning. This is not new. In fact, in the Gospels, I see that Jesus contended with this very issue with the religious Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, you can read it on your own when you have a moment, but it is that moment where the Pharisees indict Jesus for eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Something the Pharisees, the Sadducees, would have never considered doing. They felt that any kind of interaction with such people as tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, etc. would have defiled them from their place of righteousness and therefore they would be incapable of serving God as a Levitical priest. But Jesus boldly went into these places. And if you look at the Gospels, you will see that there was a divide between the culture and the religious Pharisees that I think we are mirroring today. The Pharisees are over here complaining about the culture. They're complaining about people's lack of devotion. They're complaining about the direction that the world is going. And yet they are so separated from the culture that they have no impact on it. And they probably don't even know what the culture is thinking. They're assuming it. And then you have the culture over here that is dying, that is looking for answers. And the reason I know that is in the manner in which they embrace Christ. For example, we have indications that when the culture heard, and the the simple people, the the average people, the ordinary people, the culture heard Christ speak, it was with an authority that they've never heard before. And then when he interacted with them, there was an accessibility to Christ to God that they had never, ever, ever experienced before. And it allowed them to further listen with intrigue to what Jesus had to say. Now, about 60 years later, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. And I want to read this to you because this separation, I believe, is happening again. It's very interesting. He's speaking of them interacting and on fellowshipping with a believer who is in the midst of sexual immorality. And he indicts them. He says, no, this should not be. For anyone who is a believer should not conduct himself in such a way, and therefore he should not be amongst you in uh, the fellowship, for even the pagans do not... Uh, practice such things. This young man was sleeping with his stepmother. But then he says something in verse 9 of chapter 5, and you can read the entire context for yourself. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Hyphen. There is no punctuation in the original Greek that is added by English translators, but I believe they have it right here. And what they are saying is that Paul then stops for a moment to consider what he is going to say next. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. What is he saying there? 
I believe the same thing happened in Corinth, where the subculture grew, they withdrew from the culture, they felt that any kind of exposure to sexual immorality was going to defile them, and yet they hypocritically uh, tolerated this one claiming to be a believer, and yet they would separate themselves from those of the world. And God's and Paul's saying, no. No, we need to be amongst them in some way, not of them, and not of this world, but amongst them. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we need to understand that God is sending us into our worlds, wherever that may be, those people that we know, that we may be lights in the darkness, that we may be ambassadors for Him, that we may, that we may in, um, engage the culture. When I became a Christian, individuals were looking to use their artistic gifts for the purpose of evangelism, everything from sculptures to painting to music. Unfortunately today, those things now have been brought down into our subculture and instead of being an evangelistic tool into the world, as the bands that I knew who were uh, preaching the gospel, they wanted to get on the main secular radio stations. They wanted to get into the main secular venues so they could preach the gospel to the lost. Today, you know what it's become? Christian entertainment. Where the subculture has been ratified and solidified by these things rather than being used by these things. And today, 20 years after the start of the church, I will say that the divide between the culture and the church is greater than ever before. And that is why seminaries are looking how to engage the culture. But you engage the culture every single day. When you go to work, you're engaging the culture. I think E.B. Taylor said it best when he tried to define what culture is. He says, culture is the words that complex the whole which includes knowledge, belief, art, morals, laws, customs, and other compatibilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. So what I am saying to you is that as a church here, 20 years later, we need to reinstill in each and every one of us that God has called us to engage the culture. And yes, it is more difficult today. It is more difficult because unfortunately, there is a persona that we now have to get over that many have concerning the church, concerning Christians. They're all hypocrites. They're all, the church is just an organization looking to try to control people. And now we have to get over those barriers. And it's going to be somewhat difficult. But it doesn't inhibit us from engaging the culture and stepping out of our subculture and allowing God to use us where we are at. Undoubtedly, one of the elements that all of the books that I have read on engaging the culture seem to miss as they go back into the Bible and they talk about Paul's experience, John's experience, Luke's experience, etc., and so forth, they seem to miss the idea now that today, 2,000 years later, Christianity isn't something new as it was when it was first introduced in the Bible. So we're not telling them about something new. This is something that has been around. And so there's 2,000 years of tradition and stereotypes and personas that now have to be overcome to really get to the heart of who Jesus Christ is. And what I want to make sure is that our church 
doesn't feed into those things that are keeping people from hearing the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we are a church that are displaying for individuals the glories of the gospel's truth. So number one, if we're going to engage the culture, we must understand that we as individuals are to give people who are see us, who experience us, who interact with us, a taste of what is yet to come. People should see in us a taste of what is yet to come that Christ will establish for all eternity. They should see that in us. We should be something different. Just as these passers-by saw something different, this scene may not repeat itself. I don't think it will. Uh, will won't repeat itself. But we, as individuals walking in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, should be unique enough to draw people's attention. Let me give you a couple of examples. For years, I had difficulty sharing with my parents the, gospels of Je- the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the door opened. And in 2014, my mom got saved, and now we're working on my dad. And one of the reasons that my dad allows me to talk to him about the Lord is because he has seen the marriage that Dean and I have, how much we love each other, how much we care for one another, how we respect one another. Not seeing that in so many other marriages and so forth. Seeing how I have changed as an individual has now led him to say, I'll listen to what you have to say about Jesus. I'm not perfect. Dean is not perfect. None of us are. But it has given us the ability to do what God has asked us to do. We give him a taste of what it could be like. I joined the association board of our building. And you don't join the association building uh, uh, board unless you have an agenda. Trust me. My agenda was that I wanted to interact with the people of our building and allow them to see Christ in me. Secondly, I wanted a pool. But first and foremost, <clears throat> first and foremost, I wanted them to see Christ in me. I've served on the board now for 10 years. And just last Tuesday, I had a chance to sit down with a one of the other members of the board, uh, a dear lady, and I got to share the gospel with her for an hour and a half. And she said, because she saw our family and specifically my daughter and how she's grown up to be this lovely young lady. And I said, really? Are we talking about the same person? No. Um, I just got to help her stay humble. And, uh, but it, it, it gave me that platform of credibility. We gave her a taste of what it could be that she is missing in her own life. And she was riveted. She couldn't get enough of it. See, people, yes, they're dismissing a lot of the church and a lot of Christianity due to the hypocritical nature in which some Christians live, but many are looking for authenticity. So surrendering myself to the Lord, I allow myself each and every day, I don't care if it's the guy coming over to fix my AT&T U-verse, a guy delivering my refrigerator, a contractor that I have working on my kitchen. I am going to be a light to each and every one of those people. I don't care if I'm sitting at a table at a restaurant. I don't care where it is. That's my opportunity to interact with the culture. 
That's my opportunity to give them a glimpse of Christ. However small that, or the breath of that is, that's the way I view these things, giving them a taste of what is to come. Understand that every time we are around people who are not believers, we have an opportunity to engage the culture. Every single time. Without fail, we can engage the culture by understanding that people around me don't know the Lord and I have the greatest news that they could possibly ever hear and this is my opportunity. Number three. We as Christians have to do a much better job if we are going to continue to engage the culture intelligently of listening. We have to listen. Listen to what people are saying. Peter was asked the question, what does this mean? And he listened and understood that they were looking at the full implications of what the event before them actually means. And that's exactly the explanation that he'll give them in our next time together. But that being said, we as Christians need to do a better job at listening to the world around us. What do I mean by that? We have to understand how they think. And that's becoming very difficult. We have to understand the questions that they are asking rather than answering questions that no one is asking. And then we, number four, we have to look for what I call cultural cues. When my daughter does a play and she's off stage, she waits for her cue to come on stage to uh, give her lines and so forth. I think we need to look for cultural cues. We, look to free, we need to look for those moments of opportunity where now God would have us engage where God would then have us to say, but wait a minute, have you considered the other side of the argument? Have you considered the ramifications of the decision you are making? And based on biblical principles, this is what God says is going to happen if you implement those things. We have to look for those cultural cues, those opportunities. And when we get an opportunity, we must take advantage of it. We have to. Don't get stuck. Number five, don't get stuck. What do I mean by that? The way God and the Spirit interacted with the culture 20 years ago may not be the same way He does it today. It's going to be the same content. It's going to be the same word. It's going to be the same gospel. But He may do it in a different way. My wife, being a hairstylist, has often had the privilege of sharing Christ with many of her customers. What a great time to share the gospel when you have a knife to their head. You know? I can't believe how fruitful that is, you know. I should say a razor. Is that what they call it? The razor? Scissors? No, more razors. Uh, But it's amazing in how many conversations she has gotten into over the years with people about the Lord, just looking for that opportunity because they treat her like a bartender. They'll share their whole life story. And she gets to show them the love of Christ. She gets to show them the grace of God. She gets to show them the gospel working in and through her life and sharing with them. We've seen much fruit through that simple ministry, that simple means. So seek the Lord today and how he would have you engage the culture. 
Lord, what would you have me to do? Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in your engagement of the culture. Understand that you may be planting seeds for the first time or watering seeds in the progression or maybe being that part of the individual that God uses to draw that person onto Christ. Don't stop. Continue to engage the culture. We need to get out of our subculture. We need to get out of our places of complacency and we need to be thrusted back in to the culture. And you know what? I think that's exactly what God would have us to do. By fulfilling who God has called you to be as an individual believer, you and I can once again go about our daily lives affecting the culture around us, the world around us, just by simply interacting as God would have us to interact with the people who are around us. And to know how that is, we read through the epistles and Paul outlines that for us and Acts demonstrates that for us. The Gospels display that for us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, we're taking a high-level view of this chapter. And immediately they were confronted by the culture. They were mocked and ridiculed from the very beginning. But they had now an audience gathered asking the question, what does this mean? And that's really the hope that I have for each and every one of you, that as you interact with your world, you will draw them into a place eventually where they will ask the question, what does this really mean?